Hey there, boardroom listeners. Welcome to the Boardroom Podcast. I want to tell you a little bit about RideList, the app for riders such as myself. I look at the RideList app all the time. It's a peer-to-peer gear marketplace. Buy, sell, swap your gear using RideList on your iPhone. It's fast, free, and easy. Download the RideList app today. RideList. It's 2019. We're gearing up for the Boardroom Show, May 4th and 5th at the Del Mar Fairgrounds. Boardroomshow.com for more information. We're excited to be honoring Wayne Lynch and the Icons of Foam, tribute to the Masters Shaping Competition. Eight shapers will be vying to win the $1,000 and have their name inscribed on the Mike Marshall Perpetual Trophy. Boardroomshow.com. And in conjunction with the boardroom show, the California Gold Surf Auction, 50-plus surfboards and items of collectible nature. This is the best of the best, the prime, the primo, the choice selections. And we've got some great boards on offer. Make sure you check out CaliforniaGoldSurfAuction.com. Chris Morrow and I worked together at Surfer Magazine for a number of years. I want to say like 98 to 2008, something like that. Chris played a number of roles there during those years. He was a features writer, managing editor, and editor-in-chief, and many times keeper of the peace. He's a smart guy, well-connected, even-keeled, and politically savvy. Chris is most importantly a wonderful father, a great surfer, and he's a super fun guy with which to hang out. Many of my phone calls to Chris have started with him saying something along the lines of, Now, Bassie, this is strictly off the record. You didn't hear it from me. Of course, then me agreeing to this, followed by a fast-paced discourse back and forth, never short of opinions, often strong-willed, bordering on stubborn, but always with a cogent reason for digging in his heels. The Boardroom Podcast featuring Chris Morrow. Let us begin. Okay, the Boardroom Podcast featuring our guest, Chris Morrow. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you, Scott. Good to see you again. Yeah. I I usually start the show with something um, kind of off the wall. Yeah. So I want to know, have you ever killed an animal? Gosh. As a kid, maybe? Like with... Not a... Bottle rockets or something? You know... Uh, maybe a lizard. What do you uh, mean? Maybe you either did or you I, did. I, I'm just trying to think. You know, I don't recall ever being one of those kids that tortured things. You know, I had friends who would love to do that. I was, I would crawl around. I didn't really like mushy things. I remember once a blue shark washed up on the beach um, where I live, and we took that thing and 
dissected it and cut it all up into pieces and we actually threw it in kind of the the little river that runs down to the beach um underneath the beach stairs by our house and it stunk those stairs up for an entire summer (laughs) because the carcass was in there that's not good how big Uh, was this blue shark it was about a six footer you know and um it was this is in laguna and yeah south laguna and, and you're Three Arch Bay area? Yeah, exactly. So that's where you grew up, right? Three yeah, Arch Bay. yeah. I grew up same neighborhood that um, Mike Parsons. He's about three or four years older than me. Right. So we grew up. He was kind of my uh, he was my mentor growing up. He he had the best job in the world when I was a grom when I was ten years old. He drove the dune buggy around the beach that picked up all the trash cans. Ah. And um and it was like all I wanted to do when I was a kid was like drive that thing because it would just look like the coolest job ever, you know. <laughs> And Snips was the trash man, and I was walking down the stairs one day with my board, and, you know, I would known him, but not great, because at that age, you know, three or four years difference is a big deal, and um, he was the only guy on the beach, and I was just like, hey, man, can I, can I drive that, you know? <laughs> and he was like, if you help me pull these, you know, carry these bags up the stairs, yeah. you know, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll let you have a shot, you know, behind the wheel, and... Yeah. um. I'm like, yeah, no problem, you know, and, and, uh, that was honestly, that was the start of a friendship that lasted, you know, to this day. And you, we were, he, um, those stairs, there was two sets of stairs. There was probably on the beach is only about a quarter mile long, but we would just be, you know, hauling bags up every day, driving that dune buggy around and then going for a little surf. But he was, he was the guy who kind of took me out of that little closeout bay cove where it's just you know it's a sloppy shore break and he was the one who got me down to trestles and sort of showed me like there was waves outside of that little world we lived in yeah so when you're 10 it was a small little world oh for sure yeah so so that was fun um it was hilarious well since you brought up mike parsons i'm gonna go right there as a segue yeah okay yeah um let's see what do i have here okay a few weeks ago Mike Parsons, the Big Wave World Tour commissioner for the WSL, infamously called off the first day of competition, Chris, as you know. Basically, he was concerned with athlete safety. Mm. The first heat, in my opinion, was one of the most compelling Big Wave surf contest heats I've ever witnessed in my life. Mm. It was awesome. I'm sure you saw it. And I was on the edge of my seat. Um, an armchair quarterback, such as myself, called yeah. BS on it. I actually never publicly called BS, but internally I was going, this is lame. They should run this thing. It's epic. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And of course, Albie Lair, one of the professional athletes, um, went so far as to kind of call out Mike Parsons and mm-hmm. the WSL for canceling it. Mm. Now, I guess in hindsight, you could say, Hey, good call. Mm-hmm. The next day they ran an event. The first couple of hours of the event weren't great, but it kind of got better as the day went on. Mm-hmm. Your thoughts on, on Mike Parsons calling that, event after the first heat were were you watching it were you disappointed as a fan were you did you, you know give me some insight there. i wasn't watching it closely i was doing some other things that day so i kind of had a few windows open with the volume off and wasn't paying close attention um i did see i mean it looked pretty freaking unruly to me um it was i agree it's always fascinating the monday morning quarterbacking and and frankly, even the Saturday sort of morning predicting that you see in the big wave tour, that's the hardest job there is um, to be able to have to green light a contest 72 hours in advance 
hoping that all the elements come together um, is a really tough call because you're basically saying this operation is on and you're writing a check for a million bucks or so, you know, to get that thing going. And it's a heavy, heavy call. So you can't take that call lightly to turn it off. But Mike is a huge part of that big wave community and he's lost friends. And I, you know, I think at the end of the day had something gone wrong, which could have gone wrong. Um, that would have been pretty tragic and people would have been going the other way. And so it's like, you're damned if you do damned, if you don't in that position. Um, I think fortunately the event, you know, turned out okay. Cause the, the next day was pretty compelling as well. And, um, the surf was still good size, maybe not huge, but, um, it was still a compelling event. And, um, I remember last year when, when he made the call to go, it was super early in the season. If you remember the first, that, that Jaws one and, and Albie and those guys were all in Europe and they were complaining like, this is going to suck and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, that one turned out to be gold. You look at the Ian Walsh's barrel from last year and it was sheet glass Jaws. You never see that. So sometimes you're going to call it right. And sometimes you might not. And, um, you know, I know that's a high pressure job. I think he's doing the best he can do. I honestly don't really make any judgment and don't really care. It's like, right. did you watch? You were watching. So, <laughs> well, look, I watched it. I watched it. And, yeah. and as a fan, I'm like, you know, part of me is, um, look, there's, there's this kind of a sick part of all of us. Well, I don't want to generalize, but <laughs> yeah. there's a part of me that's like, these guys are taking gas. This is great. This is insane. And then yeah. some of them, I yeah. mean, the bottom turn, the twiggy, like the barrels these guys were oh. pulling into was just incredible in that first heat. Now, none were made, but it didn't matter. No. Because it was just like groundbreaking stuff that was happening. Now, I understand that I don't think that the WSL or the ASP has ever lost a surfer in competition. No, I don't think so either. That but, would be a pretty heavy asterisk to have on your resume as a commissioner to be the first one to lose. However, I was speaking to Gary Linden and, and, um, you know, the subject came up of, look, eventually somebody's going to die mm-hmm. on, on the Big Wave World Tour. I, I just think it's going to happen. I don't want it to happen. No one wants it to happen. No right. one wants people to die. But this is some pretty heavy stuff we're dealing with here. You know, is there a contingency? Like, what does the WSL do if that? I mean, they must have had backroom discussions about w- basically PR control. I think what's so amazing about that whole Big Wave community and that tribe when you get to um, really see how they operate is how much emphasis they all put on the safety thing. You know, um, Greg Long and and all those guys, Brian and those guys, and the work that they've done through years and years of just practice and training and um, to, to really hone in um, and refine the operation, just every aspect of it. Um, so much respect for what they do. And so I feel like those guys are safer than they've ever been. And it's, you know, you think – you hear like a lot of the critics in the big wave thing, it's almost become too safe because there's that whole go straight and inflate thing. That's like, if you're one of those guys, it's like, that's looked down upon and it's good. Like if you think about how much big wave surfing's evolved, um, over the last 15, 20 years, it was like the towing thing was ass massive and it was a big deal. But then it was like, okay, towing is no longer cool. Now these guys are all paddling into all these crazy ways. Now the straight in, you know, go straight and inflate. Not cool. You know, if you're one of those guys who leans pretty hard on your inflation thing, they are, you're not in good with the, the big boys. Aren't they pulling those things on every wave at Jaws? Well, there's a difference between pulling them every wave and going going with that as your, um, That's your you plan. Know, plan A. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
Um, I don't know. I don't know if they're pulling every every time, but um, you're asking the wrong guy. Yeah, yeah. But- okay, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> I just you know, you brought up Parsons. I had him later in my yeah, conversation. Yeah, no, that's good. You know, let's get back to you a little bit. Okay, we know you ha- haven't killed any animals. Are you sure you haven't like? set some frogs off on a raft and thrown rocks at them or anything like that no i don't i honestly don't think i have you know i don't i was there was it was funny i my friends in san clemente and stuff i remember a couple of these kids were up the street were um sort of nerdy kids who used to do that kind of stuff and take bb guns i just i was never that type it was weird um couldn't 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 see myself doing that didn't really own a bb gun or yeah any of those things where you torture yeah um kittens and well, this stuff, is good so. to know this is so this yeah is i think i'm i think i'm a gentle soul i uh, guess i think you are too actually <laughs> so you were born in southern california i was laguna beach yep um brothers and sisters i'm number five of six large family moro is that, is that italian yeah it's italian. you don't look italian yeah it's uh well italian and then we've got some some very much uh, some german going uh-huh. as well okay um and actually just traced our roots because one of my grandmothers was adopted and we just found some distant, like, or just, just about a month ago, like Swiss. Oh, really? So yeah, it's interesting. Okay. Yeah. Um, and you grew up in Laguna Beach. You grew up, you grew up at right there at, at Three Arch Bay, right? Is that what yeah. Doing? So my dad was a, a doctor and he bought, uh, the house that we grew, I grew up in, it, the house was built in 1929. And, um, he and my mom, he was just starting his practice in like 60. He moved over to California in 1960. They bought a, they moved around to Laguna for a little while, but all the, he was in the Navy. He was a flight surgeon. Mm-hmm. Mel, the flight surgeon was like, you got to go to Laguna. Like that was the deal when they all came out here. Right. Um, and check it out. Yeah. And, and so he did, and he found, they rented in near, um, midtown and stuff but then they ended up in three arch bay and then this house came on the market that was right on the cliff and it was in 1967 and it was for 75 grand yeah and my dad was like we are buying that thing i don't care what and it was a big rundown it was like one of the first houses built on the cliff the walls were paper thin it was like camping my mom cried when she saw it because she was like this is just a (laughs) shithole right and you know, my dad was a depression baby. He was born the day he was born. His father lost everything. It was wow. the day the banks closed in 1933. Wow. Um, and so, you know, he was a very, um, you know, that whole depression era guys, they're very resourceful. My yeah. dad, you know, we had the same refrigerator. I said this at his, his funeral. Yeah. <laughs> we had the same refrigerator for 40 years. Wow. You know what I mean? And yeah. it was like, we were just like, dad, can we just get one that makes ice, you know, or something? <laughs> you know? Like, he's like, no, it's like, perfect. Uh, leave it alone. You know, like nothing ever got updated, you know? And uh, it was a tiny little, but you know, my dad, to his credit, he's like, he knew, he was like, look at the view. And the view was everything. It was the best place in the world to grow up because yeah. we could see the waves. Yeah. And um, and so for a kid, for me, I mean, that obviously that decision, I wasn't even born yet, but it affected right. my life right? Um, in a big way. And so I'm forever grateful to my parents for that. And, and were you born in like 1970 or? 68. 68, okay. Yeah. Um, as a young surfer in Orange County, and I mean like, like, like you're saying like 10, 11, 12, you're getting yeah. into your teens. Mm-hmm. Um, from my vantage down here in San Diego, 
Orange County felt like the epicenter of the surf world. Yeah, Did you well, have that? you know, it was funny because I was just interviewing Don Craig the other day, mm-hmm. and um, Don Craig was, you know, he grew up in the South Bay in the fifties, yeah. and and South Bay was the capital of the world because right. that's when Dewey Weber and Hap Jacobs and Velzi and those yeah. guys, and he was very much a part of that. Um, what was interesting about that era that you mentioned, so when I was 10 years old in 78, it, let's look back at surf history, right? That was the birth of the Pro Tour. Mm-hmm. Um, California was still very much kind of in the dark ages. Yes. Um, every town, just depending on where you were, was either, you know, dark wetsuit and whatever, or there was a few cracks of light. Now, one wait, of the- a minute, wait a minute, are you saying dark wetsuits weren't good? <laughs> no, it was just, it was it was sort of like... I think what you had were these pretty rigid hierarchies at every single lineup, right? Yeah. And let's just say, and, you know, if you were... There was definitely progression in certain regions and a lack of progression, so to speak. Correct. And so where you saw some of the progression starting to really crack um, was towns like San Clemente Mm -hmm. and towns like Newport Mm -hmm. um, and even areas down here, you know? Well, what's, it's funny because what I was going to suggest to you is one of the darkest regions had a lot of progress, but wouldn't even raise their flag and say that. Yeah. And I'm talking about Point Loma. Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of surfboard progression, went, but they were it was amongst themselves. They didn't really want to share it. Well, and that was the I think localism was so heavy and you, it's hard for people who are growing up today to even grasp how heavily the localism was in California at the time. Mm-hmm. We'd gone pretty underground. Surfing was pretty seedy. My dad was not stoked when I started picking up a surfboard, you know, like conservative guy, doctor, went to Yale, you know, the whole deal. And, and, um, I'm, he cared, but it was like, at that point he didn't realize how far I was going to go with it, but yeah. he was like, it, it's just one of those things where, surfers were in laguna especially there was the whole drugs 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 brotherhood the whole the brotherhood of, yeah. of, of you know like that whole thing with the drug dealing and guys and, were doing and rightly so, stuff. right yeah I mean, it was radical my father was the same way yeah and in many regards they were correct I mean, yeah drugs were synonymous oh, they ruled and so my dad was just like yeah just be careful and and so what was interesting for me in that era was that you know mike was one of these guys who was early plugged into the kind of burgeoning contest thing. He was one of the first guys kind of on the NSSA program with Ian and PT, and he dragged me, started dragging me these contests. So when I started doing NSSA, his current was still in the NSSA. Yeah. And it was really fun to see it was kind of get outside of our little hood. Yeah. And that little tribe that we had with, like, the Frohoffs and the Robinsons and the Kelly Gibsons and the Gary Clisbys and – um uh going up and down the coast because it was, you know, one contest a month and they were everywhere from Santa Cruz and Ventura all the way down to, um, down this way. Um, it was like a mini world tour for us. How important do you think it was that it, it was Ian Cairns and Peter Town and two Australians that were legends within the surf industry and the magazines and for guys like you that were eating that stuff, you and I, yeah. they were eating that up to have them come over and all of a sudden run the NSSA. I'm not sure it would have bird. Um, like blossomed so quickly if it was like the guy from Huntington Beach, no. Madison High School that was it, still doing it. Yeah, it wouldn't have. And 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 they were the ones that was big giant, you know, they sort lightning rod validated it. Hundred yeah. percent. I mean, look, their contribution cannot be understated to yeah. what they accomplished. And 
when you look at their impact um uh, I actually think it is understated, though. I mean, look, PT the knee, and they get their their credit for other things, but yeah. in regards to awakening the, the sleeping yeah. giant here yeah. in the United States, it yeah. was massive, yeah, and I agree. and so so it was super fun to be part of that little community because um, I remember once we were in Topanga Topanga Point, and Gur got in this fight in the parking lot with a local, you know, Brad Gerlach. Yeah. yeah. And it was the funniest thing ever. The, like the guy was getting in their face cause they were, they weren't stoked that we were there running a contest, you know, Topanga still had its like troll factor. And this yeah. guy was getting in Gur's face in the parking lot and like right up to him. And Gur just stood like an inch from the guy's face. And, and Gur's he was like, like five, five. Yeah. But Gur, and it was so funny, but Gur, Gur was a tough kid. Oh, for sure. No, no, and no. And the guy's no, like, what are you going to do? Kiss me. And Gur, kiss me like Gur's like no man i'm not gonna kiss you and he just freaking headbutts the guy in the face and they just start going at it and ian's like running up from the beach to pull him all away (laughs) and it was like the full scene it was classic that's cool um but it was uh it it was a really fun fun period to be part of that thing and you know to your point orange county san clemente especially and this kind of dovetails right into what was interesting and i was just learning about the other day with don craig is when the rip curl center got put in right there at trestles yeah don was the one who kind of set that up and that was through bob mcknight and those guys because quicksilver was early partners with rip curl right don had been working for quicksilver for a few months but he was like hey i don't think i could do this justice because he was kind of you know working a couple jobs at once he was working for this architect and then he was kind of sub-repping quicksilver and you got to remember at that time surf shops didn't really like there was no category for trunks. They were all boards. It was boards and wetsuits. Yeah. The clothing industry hadn't really, right. you know, it was starting. It was right? starting, it was but it wasn't starting. It was like, yeah, you had hanged hen. You had some of these things, you know, like, oh, you OP. Mean like, like 79, 78. You mean? Yeah. Well, this is, yeah, I think it was 78, 79, yeah. somewhere in there. Um, and I don't know which year they put the shop in there. I want to say it was 81 or something like that. But um, anyway, Don, they go, when he told McKnight and those guys, like, hey, I don't know if I could do this. They're like, hey, we're going to do this Rip Curl thing, and um, we want you to open up the shop down there, like get a flagship. And he knew because he'd been working with these these guys in that area. He's like, I got the perfect spot for you. Yeah. And, um, and Don ran Rip Curl for the first few years, and Rip Curl – for us in San Clemente, like, and, and I gravitated to San Clemente a lot just because I had one of my best friends live down there. Mm-hmm. Who was that? Um, his name was Court Morgan. His mom was my dad's head nurse. Okay. Right. So I'd known him since birth. He lived on the same street as Matt Archibald. Okay. And so that's how I met Matt. We were all the same age. Right. And um, anyway, I would be going down there to hang out. We'd surf T Street. And um, I'd showed. I, I called Mike. I remember going, hey, you have to see this kid surf. And that was Archie when he was young. And yeah. we have to get him in these contests. Yeah, you know? yeah. So, But the Rip Curl store was – Well, the Rip Curl talking. store, the reason why it was impactful was because Don started running these contests in, these, in San Clemente going the Rip Curl – like almost like the early iterations of the Garam Search. Right. He ran this Rip Curl surf series, and they were there weren't a lot of contests back then. Right. You know, there was WSA and that. Um, but then the other thing was like you had Rabbit Bartholomew, Wayne Lynch – Shane Haran and these guys popping through town and they were touchable and like pro surfing, like we Californians hadn't seen like to yeah. see those guys. I know that was, huge. and that was those era. That was that era when you had the insulator, the Dom patrol, the agri light, you yeah. know, it was like heyday. Yeah. And, um, those guys were very much in their prime. Pro surfing was this brand new thing. And it was, 
lighting up kind of the magazines and the rest of the world, but not really touching, touching our shores yet, you know? Our yeah. only little taste was really the Stubby's Pro every summer at Trestles. Yeah. Um, and, um, and then in, in 82 or 83 when the OP Pro started, which was like for us, Jeez. that was just massive. And they had an event at Malibu, that Malibu one, I think the IPS one, pre-ASP. Yeah, Malibu Pro or something. Yeah. Um, but the, the ASP deal, when Ian took over – and he, they had that whole. The, and the Malibu Pro was shoddy. Like somebody ran. It was off one with, foot. Somebody ran off with the money too. Like oh, I don't organized. know. I think at one point. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I, I have to do the homework on that one. But, um, but the OP Pro was a huge deal, you yeah. know, because it was like all of a sudden these guys who were larger than life were hitting our shore. Yeah. And in our ways, and we could see what they were doing in the same kind of slop that we had. Yeah. And and how they were doing stuff, and they were just charismatic guys. They were funny. Um, the contests, you know, like surfers were approachable. Yeah. You know, you could be a fan and walk right up to them. Then yeah. there was no contest competitors area or any of that. So it was a really fun time to be a Grom. Um, I thought just because of all the change, and then you add mix in the board design and how fast things were changing. You know. I remember Don Craig coming into Sunset Surfboards where I worked mm-hmm. and laying out all those new wetsuits. And it was like, oh, my God, am I really going to wear a navy blue wetsuit with these white things on it? Like, yeah. that was like a big deal. Like, you had to have, like, there yeah. were certain places you weren't going to be able to surf if you had that suit oh, on. 100%. <laughs> I mean, it was like, that was a big decision. It was like, this, is, this decision is going to tell me where I can travel to if yeah. I could go surf this lineup or that lineup. Yeah. But at the same time, it was like, if you were a trestle surfer... Oh, you were a star with that suit. You wanted a little bit of, like, a little whiteness or something on there, like a little white stripe or something. I remember Archibald had a red one with white stripes, yeah. one of those. Well, it got, it got crazy pretty quick, you yeah. know? But it started um, it started pretty slowly. So that was, um, that was you know, what why about- that happened. And then you look at the Newport thing, you go up and look at what Danny Kwok and those guys were doing. That was really Quicksilver's beachhead yeah for sure and echo beach and the whole deal was just completely going haywire up there so it was the epicenter of the surf world i mean in many ways at least fiscally it was driving that was the birthplace that was the birthplace of the injury sorry industry um the modern day industry yeah um and it was certainly i would say once you got to kind of 78 80 i would say the the epicenter shifted to that stretch of coast yes between newport and san clemente and, and what about um, as a young professional surfer, which is what you were, um, being able to, to like like deal with Larry Moore or deal with Gravels? Like you had Chris Billy and Kevin Billy, and you had these guys <laughs> that were sort of 1978, 79. Mm-hmm. And then they're sort of, you know, five years later or whatever. It's kind of like it's exploded. Yeah. So was it a big deal? Did you know that you were in the epicenter? Did you, did you like, if you got a call from Larry going, Hey, the lights, it's Larry light or whatever, let's yeah. go. Were you like, yeah, okay, whatever. Or were you like, Hey, this could be my chance. Uh, it's so funny because Larry was, um, very much a father figure to us in a way. The magazines were both, you know, surfing magazine used to be right at Pochi. Um, uh, when we were growing up, surfer was right in somebody's point. house. It was, it was no, it was right at. Um, so, Just do you know where Pochi is? Yeah. Okay, so there's a street that kind of goes towards the DMV right there. Oh, I know exactly. Yeah, and yeah. it was right okay, there. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. that's where it used to be in that little business center right there, and it was just a tiny little office building. Um, but you know, those guys were approachable, and Larry was very again. The magazines were very different then too. 
yeah. this was the interesting thing. Surfing was very all in. Like, hey, we're all in on the pro surfing deal. Absolutely. Where, you know, Larry was the, the bright. was kind of involved with it, right? Yeah, he was. And, and Surfer was still kind of holding on. Lopez to, and yeah. single fins. And like, we're into thrusters now and they're just hanging on, you know. Yeah. And, and it was a little bit more old school. And so this generation, my generation was just like, we were big, huge fans of surfing. And so Larry <laughs> was like the commander. And he was just like, our our duty was to be at Creek at dawn every day, you know? Yeah. And if it's Larry light, you're shooting. And if there is a swell coming, it might be a Totos mission or Baja Malibu or something like that. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think we were, it was, it was just sort of routine. It was just like, we didn't, it wasn't like, Oh my God, I'm going to get my shot. Yeah. Cause it was really hard to get a shot in the mag back then. Yeah. Um, it, even, in, even, even in surfing, cause Larry, you know, he held on to the power. So to he held, speak. yeah, he, you know, he ran a tight little ship and it, but he, I think he was pretty fair and equitable in how he treated other photographers. He was really good at like, Larry was so good at teaching other photographers, like, Hey, this is what you want to try to shoot for and look for and this and that. Yeah. And when he saw other photographers making an effort, he would do his best to kind of reward them. And yeah, Creek was his little studio and there's no question we were completely overrepresented. Um, later but in the early days it wasn't you know like in, yeah. in the early days when it, it was still a little bit of a struggle i would say by late 80s early 90s it was just like larry had full command and it was like yeah it, it was it was a different story by then my career career was pretty much washed up so i actually didn't really have that many larry photos in the mag yeah it, it was so funny you know not from creek actually my best larry trip for like toto's trips or baja malibu like yeah, you know, Rosarito and stuff. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn Jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references. And now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. Free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Like that. Well, I remember specifically seeing you in an ad for OP mm. where you were like laid out and you were like, oh, geez. you know which one I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, you like sort that. of had a playgirl pose going. A but Aaron was... Chang called that the um, Pampers diaper ad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And believe me, down here, we were like, who is this guy? Mm. <laughs> you know what I, mean? I bet. And, uh, of course, we were just jealous, you know, and insecure about it right. all. But um, but tell me about your career on tour. I mean, you were a pro surfer. You were on tour. You were – how old were you and what were these years? I was a schlub, flash in the pan, 
So my tour career was pretty short. Um, keep in mind, the tour then was anybody who can get to events. Yeah. So making the tour was not it, – it's not like it is today where you got to crack the top 32. Right. Um, that said, it was expensive because there were so many freaking events. Um, the, the interesting thing for me in, in the kind of needle that I, um, that I threaded was I was trying to do the NSA. Everybody was trying to copy Curran's road, win the NSA, go win the world contest, yeah. and then turn pro, and you get the big OP contract thing. The Bud Tour was just starting to make hay um, my last year in the NSSA. So and what are we talking, like 88, 89? 87. Uh-huh, right. Um, 87, yeah. So 86, 87 was that year. And um, I was number two. Chris Billy was number one. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was the number one amateur on the Bud Tour, which was getting a lot more of the attention at the time because it was starting to get TV coverage. Yeah. There was better prize money. It was just more it was legit. It was too. just legit. Like you were just in California. Oh, yeah. It was all in California. Yeah. I mean, it was so was the NSSA. Right, but, right, right. But what was cool is that in the NSSA, you're only competing against other amateurs. Yeah. It was, there was a, way more church and state back then between amateur and pro. Yeah. Um, but the Bud Tour allowed amateurs to compete. And it was cool because the way the sponsors were looking at it was like, well, geez, you're already beating pros. Right. And so I was doing pretty well, and I was the number one amateur on the Bud Tour, and I'd made had a couple of results there. And so it sort of threw a little monkey wrench into the um, traditional pathway to a good contract. Uh, but when it was time for me to turn pro that summer in 87, um, it was just lightning and struck, and I was fortunate enough to get the contract with OP. Yeah. And, um, and that was – that was the deal. And then within, what was that like? I mean, when you signed that day that you signed that thing, were you just like, <laughs> let's go get some Fantas and uh, celebrate or whatever? Well, the funniest thing, cause again, you know, you and I both grew up with pretty conservative parents Yeah, and I had just, you know, I'd done, been doing a year of community college and I was about to stop doing it, you know? Mm-hmm. And my parents were like, look, it's either you start paying rent or you move out, pick your poison, you know? Yeah. And I'm like, okay, they go, yeah, you have a couple weeks to decide. And so I think it was a couple weeks had gone by and I brought home the contract and I just go, Hey mom, check it out. And she's like, Whoa. Like, and she's like, what is it? She goes, wow. Oh, okay. And I go, yeah, I'm leaving for Fiji in about three weeks. And they're like, wait, what? You know? And how much can you tell me how much the contract was worth back then? It was peanuts. It was peanuts. Like like 1500 a month or something. Yeah. 1500, 1800. It went like to 24 grand a year. But at the time I was totally overpaid. Like the most overpaid guys were like, it was controversial. Oh yeah. Like it was hilarious. And, and, um, and deservedly so because it OP at the time that was making these decisions, these marketing decisions, like Bonnie Crail was, I don't know if you remember her super sweet lady. And, um, and then Jerry Lund, it was the same people. It was funny because the day I got signed or the day I had known Tom Curran before, yeah. but the first time we ever did a little promo tour together, um, we were driving actually in a limo up and down the coast right here. Oh my Going God. from shop to shop, right? That's so classic. And I asked him, you know, how things were with OP. And he goes, well, he goes, so you know uh, Jerry and Bonnie? And I go, yeah. He goes, they're the third marketing department since I've been here. Oh. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know? And he goes, so it's kind of a little bit, maybe a little bit of a revolving door. And I just go, all right. You know? And yeah. uh, so, but they were really sweet. And they were the ones who were, put up the OP, you know, did the OP pro 
And to their credit, they were the ones who um, they did the the OP Fiji Pro, mm-hmm. which is if you think about it, it was the predecessor of the whole Dream Tour. That was right. um, the first event they ever held on Tavarua, and it was in 1987. And so I was a wild card for that. Yeah. And um, that was kind of my the flash in my flash in the pan career because I got third. Wow. Yeah. At Cloudbreak. Yeah. Oh, cool. And so that was you know, but it was devastating because. The waves were pretty fun the first few days, but there was no surf line. There was no, you know, the forecast, like, and Tabarua back then, you got to understand it was like, there was nothing. There was no pavement. It was a restaurant and a couple burrays and that was it. And so it was full, like, well, we think the waves are going to be better tomorrow after the quarters. So we're going to wait till tomorrow. And and then the next day it was like three feet. And uh, yeah, it was sad. I lost to Glenn Winton. And the funniest thing is, I mean, I'm the slowest paddler in the world. Yeah. And Glenn Winton had web gloves. Yeah. And so the funniest part about that heat, and the only part I remember was that he caught a wave. And it was one of those things where when Cloudwreck's that small, it either zips way down the point if you get past this one little corner of mm-hmm. shish kebab, or it doesn't, you know? And, yeah. and, um, Anyway, I had a 50-yard lead on him going for the priority buoy <laughs> to get out the back. Like, easy 50 yards. I'm not even joking for the time. And I had a lead, and he freaking just chased me down and got me, like, and and, and got around the buoy first. So, oh, and I was just devastated. When I came in, Snips was just shaking his head at me. He just got me. Because I was like, oh, that would have been sick. I would have been in the final with Curran because Curran won it. Oh, were, were there some other guys on tour that – um, were sort of like, were there any guys that you sort of dreaded, like that were notorious for just being a pain in the butt in the heat or, I mean, was it just so short lived that you could, it was even... pretty short lived and I was really a fly on the wall. Yeah. Um, during the, the period I had, uh, I had moments of little, you know, when I look back at it uh, competitively, it was like my, my own highlights are just certain rides and certain turns where you, come, <laughs> you know what I mean? Where you literally come in and, and like Sean or rabbit or one of those guys is like coming up to you, patting you on the back on that was freaking sick. You know, yeah, like, yeah. honestly, those are the things like it's, it's not, um, you know, there's nights out, there's things like that. Um, but it was such a whirlwind. Um, I remember specifically breaking down once in Japan cause I had been in, um, I think I was nine events in a row. Mm-hmm. And back then, there was the trials were like six or seven rounds. Yeah, it was brutal. Yeah. You know, it was only top thirty-two. You weren't seated in any. No, there's yeah. no seeds in the trials, and right. you were just like hammering, and you had to make it through like six or seven heats to get to the money round. Yeah, and I remember there was nine events in a row where I made it to the last round of the trials oh. and didn't get to the money. Oh my! And God. I remember breaking down in Japan. I was in like Najima or something, which is this, this tiny little island, and yeah, nothing out there, and. Snips and those guys were just trying to tell me to hang in there. And I was like, I don't know. Man. Yeah. I don't know if I could do this. And, it, and I think the thing, the thing for me, what was frustrating at the time was that we grew up watching Storm Riders and had this vision of like the dream tour. Cause it was like Storm Riders. It's like rabbit at Burleigh and bells was like fun and all this. And we were going to like Najima and yeah. Florida and all these, it was, it was the worst tour schedule. Like if you go back 
and maybe ask Matt Warshaw to verify this, but it was like the 1988 schedule had like 30 something events. All of them were in complete shit beach break. It wasn't the tour that you wanted to be on. Right. You know, and like Parmenter was one of my role models and he was on tour and he's just like, this is like getting invited to that party. And then you get to that party and nobody (laughs) that you really like is at the party or whatever. It was like, (laughs) cause we were just like, what are we doing? So it wasn't, Honestly, when I look back, it was like it was super fun, but I had much more fun during my years at the magazine because, yeah, at that point, you like the magazines were healthy, they were black, and guys like you and me could just go, I'm going to Indo, yeah, we're gonna do a trip, and it's so much better to travel to a destination for that kind of reasoning as opposed to go surf a heat, yeah, for sure. Well, you mentioned Parmenter, and it brings up the Central Coast, because I know you had years at the, in the Central Coast, right? You were yeah. a billabong rep. You worked for Bob Hurley. Well, that wasn't I, – I did that before, so that was kind of tail end of my career, and I, um, I was the Orange County rep for a couple years. Um, but that was sort of like my midlife crisis that drove me up there because I had gone straight from traveling all over the world to driving around on freeways all day. Um, and it was my my territory was rip curl all the way up to the ten freeway to the border, mm-hmm. and I had seventy something accounts, and it was a, that must have been lucrative, super lucrative, yeah. And you're twenty three years old. Oh my god, you were killing it. Yeah, you were like just, the king rap. Yeah, just you know, but keeping well, Billabong at the time wasn't the Billabong we know today. It was kind of more of a t shirts and trunks line. It was pretty big. It was big. They were just like they were just starting to flaunt the cut and sew and everything like that, and we yeah. were doing big installations in all the shops and the whole yeah. deal. It was recession, so a lot of my accounts were on credit hold and stuff. Uh, but I and I loved it at first. Yeah. And then it was like I remember I would be pulling up to the Salt Creek parking lot at like four in the afternoon. The waves would be perfect, and I'd been on the road for eight hours, and I I just didn't have the energy to paddle out. Yeah. You know, it's just it just sucks the life out of you. Yeah. And it was gnarly because it was very much like a little midlife crisis that mm-hmm. I was going through at the time. And there was a girl we broke up, blah, blah, blah. Oh, but yeah. I remember the only thing that kind of brought me sanity was I would take these trips up north to go get boards from Dave because Dave was up there by then. Mm-hmm. And I would hang out with him for a few days. We'd go up the coast and we'd surf. And it Were was you just... strictly riding Dave's boards then? Yeah, at that More point. By that time I was. Um, you know, Dave was. He what was, year are we talking here? 92. Yeah, okay. Um. But Dave was, you know, he was shaping for Rusty. Right. And, you know, in my career, which was very short-lived. So Rusty, if you remember at the time, had every guy in the world riding his board. Absolutely. And so when you're a Rusty team rider and you're pretty far down on the totem pole, it was like, shit, I'm not going to be able to get a board in a hurry. Mm -hmm. And Dave would be like, dude, I'll shape you one. And Dave shaped me killer little boards. And I remember one of them I did pretty well in a contest at Malibu. It was like a six-channel little gutter thing. And, I mean, Dave shapes such good boards. Yes. And so, and he would just crank them out for me really quickly. And he was stoked to have somebody riding his boards. And, cool. and so that's how that whole thing started. And, and anyway, Dave took me around and he just knows that place like the back of his hand. And every time I would go up there, it would be a magical experience. Right. And um, met our other friend, Randy, who owns Moondoggy Surf Shop. And mm-hmm. he was confiding. And we were just talking one day and he's like, asked me how things were going. And I told him where I was kind of going through this real weird crisis, because when you're 23 and you're making really good money and all your friends are coming out of college and they're looking for jobs and they're looking at yours and going, Oh my God, yeah, you're stoked. And I'm like, not really. Well, how come I don't feel stoked? You know what I mean? It was yeah. like, I was living in this big house in San Clemente, yeah. like the whole deal, but I was super miserable. 
And um, I was just telling this to my friend last week is I moved up. Long story short, Randy offered me. He goes, hey, if you ever need a job, I need a manager up here. And I was like, well, I might take you up on that. Yeah. And um, one of my best friends, I asked, I told him how I was feeling. And <laughs> he was like, give it three months. And if you feel the same way, then you know it's real. Yeah. And I was like, okay, good call. Yeah. Did the three months. And I was so mentally gone. I was just like, okay. And a few months later, I was living in San Luis Obispo and I was working for Randy. And I remember um, sweeping the curb outside of his shop. It's fall day, beautiful, like fall up there is ridiculous. And the little old man next to me in the sandwich shop who ran the sandwich deli, he's sweeping the curb. <laughs> and the barber across the street, he's sweeping the curb. And I'm like, bye, Bob, hey, Joe. You know, it's full Norman Rockwell. Dude, and it was just like, I was like, this is insane. And I was making one fifth the money. Yeah. Going to school, working in a surf shop. And then Dave was letting me, um, you know, eventually let me use his shaping room because that was right when he and Rail's son started hanging out. Yeah. And um, so that's how that whole thing. So you started shaping boards and, and Dave was your mentor, your yeah. shaping mentor. A yeah. lot of people don't know this about you, that you've got some time behind the planer. Of course, I do because you and I work together. But Yeah, I've done about a thousand boards and hand done them all, you yeah. know. But what was, I mean, but it's funny you say that. I'm going to pick up my first board I shaped in 20 years, like today. Oh, really? Yeah. Where, I, where are you picking it up? At Basham's. Oh, cool. Yeah. So he, I just, it was, I had a hole in my quiver. I had this little Henson fish I wanted to replace. And I'm like, good luck hey. with that. Yeah. I've been trying to replace my Henson fish <laughs> for uh, 20 years. I know. But, um, I just like, I'm just going to go for this. So it was so fun. Um, but yeah, it was really, to me, the reason why those years are so meaningful is that like the house that Dave had with the little shaping barn in the back, which became my house, um, was very morning of the earth. It was like roosters crowing in the morning, shaping barn in the back, gorgeous hills, sunrise, sunset, green. And then you're going and driving up the sky beautiful stretch of coast to go find some mist wave every day and every day you can go find waves if you want up there yeah and um so it was it was this is in slow this is in slow and so it was a freaking unbelievable existence you know and it was like and that was right when i started freelancing for the mags hawk would call me up every once in a while sent me to south africa um and little random assignments here and there but i just had my fingers in a handful of things and um it was a really wonderful time. And then not only that going back and forth when I would go to Hawaii, cause I'd still go to Hawaii a lot. I would always stay with Dave and rel mm-hmm. and you were there for some of those years. Cause it was, it was, um, a lot of that stand up thing was just starting to happen. And yeah. And, um, that's the funniest story ever. Is that, <laughs> yeah. What, is that, what happened to us that one time? Uh, <laughs> who was that one classic Makaha guy? Remember you and I were, it was flat basically at Makaha and you and I were paddling, we're doing up. We were the only two guys out. Right? Was it, uh, were we surfing it or yeah, we were, was it? No, we were okay. doing standup. Yeah. Okay. It was almost flat. Okay. I think we were there for Buffalo's event. Yeah. And, um, who's the classic uncle over there that was Bruce DeSoto. Oh yeah. Remember that? And so I don't know if you remember this, but <laughs> tell, I'll me. tell it real quick. <laughs> We're out, and I think you had just caught a wave, like okay. a one-footer, and you're on the inside. And I'm out by myself. There's no one else out. And then this big, gnarly Hawaiian guy starts paddling up to me. He's like, hey, 
hey. And I'm like, oh, no, this is it. Because I've got all sorts of drama in my head. I think, you know. <laughs> yeah. He's like, hey, hey. He pals right up and goes, hey, who are you? You know what I mean? Yeah. And I immediately got down on my board on my knees and subjugated myself to him. And I said, I am so sorry. Where would you like me to go? <laughs> And he's like, no, I just want to know your name. You're welcome here, bro. My name is Bruce. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, you know? and, I'm like, oh. and he's like, get up. Start surfing. Have yeah, fun. Yeah. It was classic. That's awesome. Yeah. But yeah, I think you and I did a couple. We did the buff, and then we did that invitational one, the yeah, Quicksilver the, one, which was the big wave one. Kuraikaika. Or something like that, yeah. yeah. Um But anyways, like the... the but, but wait, you, so you're in the Central Coast, and now you make your way town to Surfer Magazine. Yeah, and I was in Central like Coast for five years. 2004 I, or something, I'm guessing. Um, no, I I was Central Coast from ninety two ninety three to um ninety three to ninety eight. I yeah. I went to work full time at Surfer at ninety eight. Yeah, and you're the managing editor, right? Is that I was associate, so I it was Hawk, Evan, myself. Right. And um and so and then it was like but within a year or two it was the whole dot com just bubble boom thing and everybody was out the door because Mags works. Well yeah, it was um it was Blue Torch and Surfline, which was something else at the time. I think Groundswell. Or swell. swell. Yeah, it was Swell. Anyway, these dot-comers came in, for the listeners that don't know, and they basically – venture capitalists picked one guy, like they would pick a Paladini or Hawk, and they mm. would leave, and then Hawk would basically – Grab. Yeah, cannibalize the entire staff. And yeah. So there was a lot of opportunity. It was – I mean, I ended up at a place called the Digital Entertainment Network, which was in Santa Monica. Um and uh, it was major funds. Like it was, Stupid. it was the height of the dot com just mania, where you could write your business plan on a cocktail napkin and it would get funded. It was that kind of deal. Yeah. And we, you'd go up there. It was crazy because you would go up there, and every time you were up there, you'd see like six new faces. They were hiring people every day, and this thing was, in a way, it was funny because it was long before its time. They were talking about video and everything, and this was 1999. No video wasn't broadband. ready, you yeah. know? And it was like – and they were having like business classes from Oxford do walkthroughs, like training, you know, like the interns and stuff and doing interviews with the executives and all this stuff. And, they're, yeah. they, and they had this dog and pony show that was incredible that they would go around saying, this is what we're going to do. And they had these incredible um, displays of – uh, videos saying what well, this is the vision of our company Did Chris and all Smith the work there was that the same place that chris smith worked i don't remember Culver chris City? smith being there okay, um, anyway, i don't mean to but honestly it was it was fairly short-lived it was one of these things where i remember my the, the woman who brought me in she was a vp one of many and she's like okay write up a business plan for what you're going to do for the action sports thing and i'm like okay cool i'll do it Hey, a quick break in the interview to tell you about RideList, the RideList app for riders such as you and I, people who'd like to buy, sell, and swap their gear with other riders. It's a peer-to-peer gear marketplace. Surfboards, skateboards, snowboards, wetsuits, snowboard gear, mountain bikes, vintage stuff. This is where you will be able to Buy, sell, and swap these items using RideList on your iPhone. It's fast. It's free. It's easy to download the RideList app. I'm looking at it right now. I'm scrolling through here. I'm seeing a number of really good-looking surfboards. Here's a Channel Islands. Here's a really unique Bonzer, one of the uh, Campbell Brothers and Channel Islands collab Bonzers. 
There's a bunch of, of course, it is snowboard season. There's a bunch of really great snowboards on here. I don't know too much about snowboarding other than I fall a lot. But the Ride List app has got snowboards. It's got surfboards. It's got tons of cool gear, mountain bikes, as I mentioned. Download the Ride List app on your iPhone and start buying, selling, and swapping your gear today. Fast, free, and easy Ride List. Now back to the interview. And so... I wrote up this plan and it was very conservative. It was like, Hey, here's what we're going to do. We're going to hire these sort of influential filmmakers. We're going to pay them this much. And these are the kinds of content we're going to get. It was, it's bare bones, like basically what you see on Instagram today, but in 1999. Yeah. And, um, the CFO called me in and he goes, he goes, Hey, I just want to talk to you about this plan. I'm like, cool. And he goes, I just want to tell you, this is the best plan I've seen since I've been here. I'm like, that's awesome. I'm just like, you got to be kidding me. He goes, no, it makes perfect sense. He goes, now this is bad news. It's never going to happen. And I'm like, what? What? He's like, well, let me explain something to you. He goes, you got hired by this woman who works for this guy who's the president. The CEO works on this side. There's a big war at the top at this company right now. And right now your side's losing. So, so, so I don't think this thing's going to go anywhere because the CEO is getting all his Hollywood buddies to do stuff and they're working on Hollywood budget. So I, you know, the CFO loved my plan because I'm sitting here going, Hey, we're going to spend three grand on this video and they're spending 30 grand on their plan. And you know, you could hire a lot more people and a lot more of your Hollywood buddies when it's 30 grand per episode. Um, so I asked the guy, I go, well, what do you recommend I do? And he goes, just hold tight until the checks stop coming. <laughs> like, I'm like, oh my god! A week later, like the lady who brought me in, she was out the door, you know, and it was, it was, it was just chaos. And fortunately for me, I had never severed my ties. Like Kevin Meehan was at Surfer at the time. Yeah, I don't know what date. What year did you come in? Ninety. Well, I worked there in '96 and '97 as an okay. intern, but I was hired in '99. Okay, so yeah, so it was right around that time, and um, I think 2000. Meehan was just like, dude, we come back, please, you know? Yeah. And, um, that's, and it was that's, cool. That's, that's after Hawk had kind of. Yeah. That was after, cause he, it was Exodus, you yeah, know, was Meehan Exodus. was a sales rep and all of a sudden he's group publisher. Exactly. Yeah. So you had this attrition and, um, Meehan was like, dude, come back and I'll get you the pay. Cause I, I wouldn't have left if I could have gotten the pay, but they just weren't doing the, the, the raises like they were. And so yeah. it all worked out pretty well in my favor. Cause I got to. Stay with Surfer. So you, you're working Dad. under Evan Slater, who's the editor now, and you're the no. He was uh, at that by then. Evan went to Swell, oh, and then he Sam. and then he looped back into um, surfing. Surfing, yeah, yeah. Because when Swell melted down, they all went to surfing. Right. Um. So yeah. So then it was Sam. Right. It was Sam, Sam George. Yeah. And then uh. So and that was you know Sam's hilarious. Like there's not an a day that goes by where he doesn't come in with so much enthusiasm yeah. like every day there was a story like he'd show up and just like you know and he, run off the road on my bike by some it was just some epiphany that he's had or something you know <laughs> sam like he's sam he's so oh, yeah. funny and like we battled it was frustrating sometimes to work with him because like you know managing a staff was not his expertise right um so that part was somewhat frustrating but we you know it was just a f- such a fun era to be there it was doing apple deal yeah and i mean we had a lot of autonomy when you think about it oh my god it was crazy because i i was listening to david's interview with jamie brissick the other day and it's a it's a great interview and um 
and Jamie was talking about how his surfing experience was so miserable because, you know, the ad guys kind of ran the show over there, and they did. Yeah, that was the difference between surfing and surf. Well, it was Lynchy and oh right, Graffy and and Lynchy, and they you know they they carried a big stick and 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 uh, surfer I will say was. The church state thing was much more rigid. Yes, you oh, know? absolutely. I mean, yeah. you remember my nickname with Hawk, the F- Hawk really laid the groundwork for that. Yeah, I think Warshaw. I think all those guys did. They I did. think it was pretty good the whole way through. And my nickname with a lot of the ad guys was Morno. You know, because <laughs> <laughs> just like they'd be trying to like, come on, can we do this? Like, nope. You know. Meanwhile, it's surfing. They're running a feature with Bob Hurley <laughs> in the feature. Uh, you know, it was just it was it it. And I love all those guys because they're hilarious, but it was just, it was relentless. And yeah. if you let them, it was one of those things. And I think one of my biggest things at that, at, when I was editor was, one of my biggest piece was, there was this expectation from the brands, um, and even a lot of the athletes, like, well, when am I going to get the phone call to go on a trip? I'm like, why do you need a phone call to go on a trip? Go on a trip, tell me where you're going, and we'll send somebody. You know yeah. what I mean? Like. Yeah. That was my MO was like, yeah, I, I don't want to set up that. a trip. Like the, yeah. I want somebody who's organically going to go. So it's like my heroes and the people we loved covering were guys like Brian Connolly and that, you know, I remember him just going out to mainland Mexico and just scoring on his own. And yes. it's like, I'm not your freaking travel agent. Right. You know, you go do your thing. And that, that's kind of what the industry expected at that time. In yeah. some ways they wanted you to call their team riders, organize a trip, get them over there, show the photo, you know? Yeah. And like, we weren't playing that game. And yeah. I think the readers respected that at the time because you know, we weren't, it wasn't like we were peers driven snow. You're right. not a journalist when you work at a surf mag. I hate to say it. You're not, no, you no. do random acts of journalism yeah, for sure, but you're, you're a trade magazine. And I had, I wish I would have recognized that. I was so naive and ignorant. I was just, <laughs> The worst. We we all were. But I think you and I had fun. I thought you did an amazing job because it was so – you were getting zero help. Yeah. I mean, and you were doing a lot of that stuff by yourself, just going, okay, what? You you can't help me? No problem. I'm just going to do this myself. (laughs) I I remember walking into Rick Irons' office and asking for a budget, and he goes, no. And I walked out of the office and just ordered the equipment. I just – I just ordered the equipment and put the receipts in. And- yeah, just throw it on your expense report. But yeah, I mean, that was uh, well. Look, one of the amazing. big things, Chris, if I can interrupt real quick. Sure. One of the big things, um, and I'm just going to read a little bit here. But as you know, Black Monday, December fifth, two thousand five, a, a letter was faxed to by Grubby Clark of Clark Foam to his customers, and. Um, he was basically said in this fact that he was succumbing to the pressure from state, local, and federal environmental officials, which he asserted had targeted him because of the use of toxins in his foam. And officials have since said that Clark Foam was in full compliance when it went out of business, just as a side note, mm-hmm. um, leaving you and I and customers sort of mystified as to what led to the company's demise. But regardless, the Clark Foam thing, um, that seems like it might have been one of the um, – sort of flashpoints in your career at Surfer Magazine. One of probably more than a handful. That was a, that for me, it was funny because when you talk about, uh, in those days, the stories that kind of went mainstream, that was the first story where I was getting calls from like CBS News and NPR. And I literally read that from the New York Times. When right. I was just reading. Yeah. And so, and we broke the story and that's all thanks to Sean Madison who called me. Um, he <laughs> called me. He was just shocked. Like he called me. He just left the factory. 
like, dude, there's freaking chains on Clark phone. It says they're closed, you know? And I mean, you and I were in Hawaii. No, we were here. I, I thought I was in Hawaii at the time. In fact, I know I was in Hawaii. You must Where have you? called us or something. I thought, yeah, he in- called me. I remember he called me, but I remember sitting in the office because then I think I called Dave and he had just gotten the facts from Grubby that went out to everybody. Yeah. And he was reading the facts. And, um, and so I, we got that story online thanks exactly. to you. Yeah. And we broke the story. Yeah. We were the first outlet to break the story. And back then, if you broke the story online, everybody called you. Exactly. Right. And yeah. so, um, so we were getting all the calls yeah. and that was a big deal. And, and it, it was, it was a fun cause I, as a shaper, yeah. you know, and somebody really was doing my best to kind of try to push the surfboard Renaissance thing and, and yeah. design and everything like that. It was like, um, we put that foam blank on the cover Yes, and which was a big deal. It was like, this changes everything, which was a direct quote from Sean Madison. He's just like, dude, this changes everything. Yeah. <laughs> like, and how hard was it to get a foam blank on the cover of surfer magazine that, that, you know, I, publishing I, Ricky I, Irons was going, no way. It was way harder to get Duke on the cover when Evan and I were oh, there. Right. That was much more of a battle. Yeah. Um, it was, and it wasn't even a battle. Like I we remember, were just like, though. we were guys, like, guys, but we had one. At the end of the day, you had the final yeah. say, right? I didn't because I was associate well, Kurt, editor. But, but the editorial did. absolutely did. Yeah. yeah. And um, we were just like, no, dude, we're doing it. And um, but that was back to the, Clark Foam. Yeah, Clark Foam. I mean, the interesting thing is now in retrospect, because it was we were like, oh my god, this changes everything. This is going to be huge. Now I look back, and I think I've said this at one of your seminars, at one of your shows, was like, did it really change everything, though? Because how much has things changed? Like, we're all getting the same blanks. So it was disruptive for a couple of years there. Yeah. But look where we've landed. I mean, that was 12 years ago. Yeah. 13. And, you know, polyurethane's still friggin' dominating. Yeah. And, um, and so in the grand scheme of things, it was sort of like this big flash. Right. But... I'm surprised by how little it's impacted things. And in fact, I look around today and this is something because you and I, when we were there and surf tech was blowing up and the Clark foam thing, we were going, Oh my God, man, the day of the shaper is done. Like the hand shaper dude in his backyard, like he's toast. That's what was the breeding ground for sacred craft. I remember. And I remember going, dude, Bassy, it'll never work. I remember just going and thank God you were like going, Moro doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. No, I, I but, was probably going, you're right. No, know. but I was like, and I'm just, well, you know why I had my, I had my backyard shapers hat on going, I wouldn't pay you 1200 bucks for a trade show. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it, and I think about it and you know, you really, it was such perfect timing for that. It and was. it was, it's such a good, and frankly, it was dumb timing. Like I, there was no forethought. Like but that's I, you need was, that naivete really to go right. That's what it was. Like, yeah, I was just right place, right time, and I had no idea what with I was the right thinking. idea. And you, but you saw it through through people like me because people like me were casting doubts on it, going, ah, "I don't know, dude." You know, but to your credit, like what you created there was amazing, and it was just at the right time because it was right when these guys needed a lift. Yeah, they needed attention. Exactly, and they needed to be celebrated. And I look around today, and um, I mean just driving down the street by where Basham's factory is like, look, one of my first jobs was working for Bill Stewart, taking orders at his place. And you know, there were a handful of little shaper things back there, but there's three times as many today. 
35 years later. And you know, in many regards, it was along the same vein as um, something that was dear to your heart, which was sort of saving the surf shop. Yeah. I mean, as an editorial theme, that was something that you really ran with. Like, we need to promote cool surf shops, you know? Yeah. And it was the same thing. It was like, let's, it was basically, let's, let's save the core here. Let's not, like, let Tilly's run wild. Yeah. And I mean, it's funny because you look at where we are and it always reminds me of like another Parmenter quote where he was just like, look, the industry is cyclical. It's no different than nature. There's a big year of rain. The, the caribou <laughs> multiply. The rain stops. They die off, right? And we've yeah. been here before. And you and I have seen it. And what's funny is I was sitting with my friends in Wahoos the other day. This was a few months ago. We're sitting there and we're looking at all the stickers on the wall, you know, and just going. And my buddy, who's private label, he does really well still because yeah. he manages, handles a lot of like accounts, surf shops and stuff. He's like, see this? He's all... It's done. He's all, that's all done. That era is over. Yeah. Like the era that you and I grew up with, that last 30, 40 year run that we just had, whole different ballgame. Like yeah. everything's been disrupted. And we're going back to that natural state of like, it's no different than when we were a kid walking into the Hobie shop in Dana Point to go grab a board and pick up a pair of trunks. And so the shops you gravitate to are the ones that actually do service. And they, you know, they know the guys behind the counter know the surfboards. Yeah. They know how to sell a wetsuit. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, it's not, it's a struggle to be in retail these days. Mm. Most of the successful guys have owned, they probably own their shop. Yeah. Um, and they staff their, 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 their building with intelligent people who actually know the product. Yeah. Um, and in many ways, that's what we grew up with. Except you get even more abused when you walked into a shop because it, it was an abusive sort of thing, which you kind of loved. Yeah. There was, um, yeah, there was some charm to that in some way. <laughs> yeah. Another flashpoint in your career editorially at Surfer Magazine was the the passing of Andy Irons. Uh, no, he – let me see. He was 05? No, he oh, was yeah, us, no, was he, he was. was that uh, was. That was a huge deal. Yeah. It was um, – And not – and, of course, you know, listeners might not know this, but his cousin Rick was – more or was less publisher. my boss. Right. And I don't know if he was your boss directly or if you yeah. guys were equals, but he was but he was a presence in the building and this was a big deal at Surfer Magazine when I mean around well, the surf so, world of course, but especially in the surfer because of this family connection. I so I left Surfer in two thousand and eight. Um and Andy died in ten. So oh, okay. I was gone. I see. But what what was what was tragic for me? Um, was that when Andy was in rehab, um, right. I'd done a lot of the big profiles on Andy, did the first one on he, he, Bruce, you know, Bruce and Andy um, when they were Groms. And a lot of that was just, I worked for HIC for a little period. Andy stayed at my house for the Nationals when he was 15, mm -hmm. um, when I lived with John Rose. Mm -hmm. and um, And so I'd known him, and he trusted me. And when we got word that he was in rehab, we had set up a thing to where we were going to do an interview with him because he wanted to talk about it. Yeah. And, and what happened with that interview? Well, this is when about – I forget how long it was going to be before it happened because I think he was due out in a week or two. Yeah. But Rick Irons walked into my office and he's just like, Chris, we can't do it. I'm like, why? And he's like, well, Nod said – He'll pull all the ads. Now, I've never confirmed this with Nod. Yeah, you mean nor, Paul Nod from yeah, Bilbo. Ricky, any of those guys. And 
And um, I thought the best article ever done was Malekian's piece because Malekian asked me all these questions. And I go, dude, call Ricky. Call, call Paul, call Graham, call all these guys. You, you I'm push just, the questions down. I'm just like, I'm like, I'm telling you what Ricky told me. And he goes, cause Brad was there and yeah. Brad, I remember Brad worked for me and he's like, yeah. well, what, what, what can we do? And I'm like, I don't think we can do anything. Like, what are we supposed to do? And, and he's like, so Brad was kind <laughs> of, Brad was the only one that saw, that had the real journalism thing going. Well, he was just like, you know, I love him. And he was like, he's like, well, you know, at the time it was like, oh, this it's bullshit. This sucks. You know, I'm like, yeah, I don't know what we could do, but when, you know, obviously at that point we didn't know what was going to happen. Yeah. And when it did, Brad was trying to recollect that conversation. And I'm like, this is what I recollect. Right. Now I wasn't in the room when Ricky got that call. I don't know if Ricky got that call Yeah. or if that was just Ricky being protective of his cousin right. or whatever. So it's, and it's really here and there, but yeah, you know, I think one of the big lessons was, and it just came out a little while ago, you know, Bruce last week, I think there was a big thing with yeah, Bruce, has Bruce struggling and, and I think it's super important that everybody talk about it. And I think it's super important that, you know, it's almost better when people know, Yeah. because frankly, when you admit your weaknesses, people are going to embrace you yeah. and do everything in their power to help you. Yeah. And, and Bruce obviously needs help. You know, and there's a lot of people who love him and care for him and want to give him help. And it's just like, it's okay to open up. And I think that if there's any lesson, that was one of them. I'll tell you what was interesting is um, my son saw the Kiss by God, the Andy Irons documentary, which is, I, I haven't seen it, but I heard it's really good. Yeah, I've seen it. And um, he was just really moved by it. Yeah. You know? And then when he found out that Bruce Irons got a DUI, he was just so disappointed. Yeah. Just disappointed because he got the feeling that they had all turned the corner, that Bruce was this was wasn't sick because Bruce was health healthy. I don't know. I mean, I, I look, I, when I saw the interviews of Bruce, even in the movie, I could just, I like, he didn't look super together even then. Yeah. And, and, um, and so, um, it is, it's, it's, they, it's such a great, they did a great job on that story and the message. What I really loved and appreciated was the fact that they got into the bipolar aspect because that really wasn't well known about Andy. Yeah. Nobody really knew it. Um, and, uh, and it was huge and it was something that is such a huge struggle for people who deal with that. Yeah. Um, and I think given where we are today in society and how many people are actually dealing with that, I think hopefully that's going to open up some conversations. So I've talked to Enoch several times and he'd probably be a good person to have on your show too. Yeah. Um, you know, they have big plans to hopefully tour that around schools and everything. It's a great message. Yeah. Cool. You know, it's like the film itself, you know, I could nitpick on historical accuracies and right. inaccuracies, but the, the the mission of what they tried to go after was accomplished. And right. I thought they did a great job and credit to all those people who sat down. Was and, and all the, the light that needed to be shed on that story shed on that story, do you think? Was everything told that needed to be told? Or are there truths that still are, need to be revealed? Uh Look, I was never super privy to the dark, dark side. Yeah. You know, um, there was whispers and all that kind of stuff. I think there's, there's always more to the story. Yeah. Um, if, if history is any guide, there's always more to the story. And um, to think that Andy Irons was maybe the only one who was, you know, dealing with opiates and that kind of thing on the tour, um, I would say that's probably pretty naive. Um, I might but suggest... I think I think there's I think the 
the, his death um, changed a lot of people. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, set a lot of people on a, on a better path. I might suggest that a portion of the story that, that hasn't been told is the story of the reaction from the surf industry to this, that there was um, some that didn't really want to reveal the truth. Um, oh yeah. I mean, that I was, think that's probably something that could be excavated. And that's where I thought Brad's piece was so great because it was an outsider. And this is why I say surf magazines were never journalistic. Yeah. They're trade magazines. I know they're trade magazines. dude. It's like, you do random acts of journalism, but I mean, think about it. If you and I, with our knowledge of what we know of who does what, we had it, we could have had a great story every week. It's like, come on, let's just be honest. We could have destroyed lives left yeah, and right if we wanted to. And it's like, that's, that's not, not our, our business. Yeah. That's not our purpose. This was like, this isn't the deal. And so I don't, when I hear people gripe about that, I go totally fair criticism, but understand this is not Time Magazine. Exactly. This is not the LA Times. Never was. Yeah. I hate to say it. Yeah. Um, and if you thought that, then you're mistaken. This is a trade magazine. And, I, I, and there are agendas. I specifically remember when Don Meek laid that out at me one time, and I was like, what? Aren't we the Wall Street Journal? He's like, no. We are here to do our clients a service. Yeah. And I was like, who's our client? I was so naive. I was, I was completely oblivious. Yeah, but and I mean, I that's still not am. to say that, like, look, all the magazines have done fantastic acts of journalism and you know it's just it's it's every one of those things is a story by story yeah you know every issue it would be you know you you'd hope that every issue there was something that yeah you'd sink your teeth into you know like a genuine authentic travel story or profile piece or yeah like the those. um timmy turner stuff kind of yeah, sticks out you know that was a great one yeah. yeah and and the duke you know you mentioned the duke cover that you and evan did and Frankly, that was like one of the most well-received, and you probably have more insight. Mm. I remember that just being like yeah. wholly received beyond the industry. Yeah, it was – I mean, it was due, right? And it was just one of these things where – That's a, by Machado's house looking south down oh, to the okay. seaside. We're looking at a Wade Konikowski painting in my dining area here. So <clears throat> you've done a bunch of voiceover work too as – as is the case when you work at a magazine, we get calls to do stuff, and you mm. you got a bunch of good calls. So you did a bunch of you did some voiceover work, right, for like the ASP or something, or maybe uh, some movies or something. Well, I did a lot of writing for um, Alan Gibby. Oh, Alan Gibby, that's right. Yeah. So you know when the Bud tour was uh, going, I one of my first jobs was I was like sort of the sideline correspondent with PT and Mike Chamberlain and those guys too. I would oh. surf in the events, and then as soon as I would lose out, they'd hand me the microphone. <laughs> And um, so I was kind of parlaying the media thing early. And then Alan, um, when Fuel TV started, he had some series. So I, I wrote some of those episodes for him. And then, you know, all the way up until even just last year, um, doing a bunch of profile pieces for the WSL, was producing yeah. those and, and doing some VO on, on a lot of those. So um, Okay, so let's get into that, the WSL. Yeah. You worked there for um... – Two oh, and a half years. Two and a half years. Yeah. Okay. And what was your official title? I was VP of content programming. Okay. Um, that was what I was hired to do. Um, what did I you kind of made up my own title in a way? Right. Uh, that's a great question. I actually, my biggest agenda, honestly, was to try to just tell athlete profiles and get those stories told. Right. Um, so that was what the, I spent the bulk of my time 
working on um, outside of managing the day-to-day of the website and the app. Um, And uh, I loved that part more than anything because it was really fun to be able to go tell the story of Jadson Andre or, you know, uh, Bianca Butentag or, or Philippe Toledo, Seabass, some of these profile pieces that these stories that people had never really didn't know much about them. Even Adriano, um, those pieces. And, and I don't think they really got seen that much. Um, I would agree with you, which, um, might be part of the problem, but that was, it was one of those things where I loved them and they were really the ones we did do that were seen were really well received. And I think, you know, in the grand scheme of things, I always judge things. You and I have, it would be interesting to get your thoughts, but like when I look at analytics and stuff like that and views and likes and this and that, a lot of that stuff means nothing to me. I read it. I read the quality of the comments Mm -hmm. in the thing and i go did this change somebody's opinion and when you look at those and you see somebody say holy moly i never knew this about this guy he's my new favorite surfer yeah that's exactly what my job was to try to do and so that's what i tried to do was Was there any discussion internally about you know i've always been big on rivalries you know that all good sport has rivalries you know i want to see you know sugar ray versus thomas the hitman hurts you know yeah um was there discussion about I don't want to say uh, crafting rivalries, but was there discussion about taking natural rivalries and 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 sort of pumping them up and excavating them and making sure that everyone knows that they exist? I think the marketing department did their best to try to play that up. Um, and you know, there 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 were so many. Look, there's so many different. Sorry, I just hit the thing. No there are so many different departments up there. Um, there's broadcast. There's marketing. There's web, there's app, social, this the whole thing, and they're all kind of playing the content game. And I think the issue at the time was that um, the left arm wasn't talking to the right, mm. and that's kind of been the, the thing. So it was really kind of hard. I think big the biggest challenge while I was there was you know alignment amongst all the forces. And and you know look, it's a it's a tough operation. Half the office is gone half the year, and then coming back, so it's really hard to get everybody in the same room and speaker was out about six or eight months after i joined and then it was like dirk was a interim for six or eight months and he's like flying in on weekends you know right um so it was a little bit of a void and it was just sort of wild west sounds like surfer magazine yeah 2000 well honestly it it actually reminds me more of that whole digital entertainment network Uh, deal uh, where uh, it was just like there's new vps coming in the door every day and you know and then it's like these VPs sit down and you ask them what their job description is. And it's like kind of overlaps with yours and yours overlaps with that guy. And you're like, everybody's like, and they're all really nice people. Yeah. Really great people. Like unbelievable. Um, but it was sort of like nobody had a clear indication of like what the agenda was, you know? Right. And I think that's what's being sorted out. I think they've, I think they're cleaning it up and, um, you know, I'm part of that cleanup process. They had to, they're upgrading the guy that they brought in, um, who ran the Oprah network. I know he's taken a lot of hits and Eric you know, Logan. The, yeah. I know he's taking hits in the, in the, in the, he comes on board stuff. in January. Yeah. But he like, he's coming turned in around the Oprah network. Well, he's coming in with a big edict to like, he gets to take all those disparate arms yeah. of, you know, people going in different directions on their own program and say, no, nope, I'm boss. 
Right. I'm doing this. Yeah. And that's exactly what needs to happen. So I'm actually really hopeful. I think that was the right decision for them. Yeah. Um, I've talked to him before, yeah. uh, over the summer yeah. when he was doing this stuff and like my indications are he's a freaking really nice, smart guy, um, who gets it. And what I think most importantly, he knows what he knows, but he also knows what he doesn't know. I agree with you. I, I was lucky enough to have lunch with him. He invited me up to Hollywood or wherever it was. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I sat down with, for two hours Yeah, and had a great talk with him. Yeah. And, and I left a big fan and I also left with the same thing that you just said yeah. that he, he was asking me, what are the questions I need to be asking? Mm-hmm. And I thought that was great. Yeah, I know he, he gets it. And, um, well, we'll person. see. We'll see. I mean, yeah. I'm not going to – I want Eric to succeed, and I, I'm a huge – I want the W7 pro, to succeed. Me too. Yeah, you and I both. Yeah. And it was like – and I – so I'm so grateful for the time I had and the people I met and the whole thing. And, it, like, in the grand scheme of things, it did not work out the way I would hope. Yeah. Um, but they treated me great, um, both coming in the door and leaving. And uh, I'm, I have nothing but respect for those guys, and I wish them the best. It's a – it's a tough road. I think, though, that he's coming in with a pretty good edict. So yeah. in terms of straightening that part of it out, yeah. I think he's going to do it. Now, whether that's going to translate into a successful, profitable, in the black business, who knows? I'm under the impression a lot of times that the ratio of you know core surfers that are in that building and in that space, in the WSL space, the core surfers that understand the culture – might not be level or 50-50 with the sort of like um, the MBAs or the suits that are in the building. Like it seems like a lot of times you'll see something and you'll be like, that is totally wrong relative to the culture. And to, it seems like there's not enough core salt in the building and there's maybe one or too many MBAs. Yeah, I think, look, when my whole arrival there was Terry Hardy reached out and Terry, you know, he's well, Terry's core core. And he was, and basically this was a few years in. Cause if you remember when the WSL kind of came in, yeah, it was kind of gnarly. It was like a land grab. Everybody's going in there. And I was working on other projects that I was having a really good time with. So I wasn't interested at all. I was doing commercial stuff um, mm-hmm. at the time. And so didn't really want any part of it, but Terry reached out um, a few years in and he's just like, Hey, look, we need salt water. We need somebody with this. Can you help? Were those his words? Basically, he's all we need. That was exactly. I mean, he was like, we need some some authentic surf people in here. And and it was a grueling. Honestly, I was like, hey, I'm super interested, you know, and it was a grueling process. The process of that whole deal was like eight interviews and, you know, with the whole Dirk and Paul and totally separate, whatever. And and, um, it was – it was an interesting thing. And then, and then you get in there and it's like, you're looking at what their expectations are and their vision and their interpretation of the market size and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And you know, those are those things that I think they're reconciling the early vision with with what reality is, you know, and, but it's taken a while. And, and, um, and so to your point, it's like, Look, there are a lot of great humans up there, and there's salt water. Right. Um, they're not necessarily making the calls. They weren't. Right. And um, I think you'll see more of that in the future. You mean more salt at the top? 
I think, well, I think you'll see more salt having its, its say. But, you know, look, the challenge is, honestly, if you go back and look at, let's just talk, let's step back from WSL, right? Yeah. And look at the formation of professional surfing and what it was organically. Yeah. It started as a bunch of disparate little independent emergent order events that popped up over the world. IPS. No, not even IPS. Pre, These are just pre-IPS. Yeah. Randy Rarick right. was the guy who just said, okay, Let's we're going we're gonna to tie this all together, yeah. right? And those guys did it. He and Fred did a fantastic job of that, right? right. And, um, and it, it started – and then the, the industry started to ignite in those early 80s that we talk about. Yeah. And if you think about our period at the magazine was very, very um, – much like when the thing caught fire in a way, because that's when webcast started. Right. And the ma- and each of those brands was competing. They, these were marketing line items. These events to them paid for themselves in marketing. It was the way they propped up their product, yeah. their stars, their whole deal. There was a, there was a, there was an agenda to do it and they wanted to make their events different from the other guy. Right. 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 And that's how s- the whole thing formed right right and so i would say the big challenge today when you're trying to centralize everything and unify it and everything like that is yeah. that if that hierarchy becomes too rigid and stiff yeah it's brittle and it breaks and and i think i don't i don't sit there and say oh well these guys or this person's the problem or that person's the problem. i think the whole thing you know the surfers if you look at it when, the way i'm looking at it, the the challenges they face is like to me the man on man format as much as i loved it when i was a kid and a competitor as a viewer it's super boring and it's completely outdated now because if you look at that four-man priority system that they have in qualifying events sunset beach right it now. solves all the problems yeah. of hassling it's yeah. all removed yeah and we actually i did a study last year year or two ago and i actually showed it to kieran i go kieran look kieran Perra, the commissioner yeah i go these guys actually ride more waves when there's more people in the heat because right. they take more opportunity. Right. And that's better for fans. Absolutely. You know, now the surfers have a lot of say though, and that's a tough, tough sell. You know, when you say, let's it's funny, shrink the I, don't, I feel like at, at, at any point in his surf, professional surfing history, it seems like the surfers have the least amount of say right well, now. Dirk to his credit coming in the door, um, really wanted to make sure the surfers had a say. And right. so the surfers do have a lot of veto power, right. like a lot. Okay. Kieran, Kieran holds a lot of cards. Okay, good. And, um, and so to I that, guess. maybe that's bad. It's good and bad. Lunatics it's good and bad because when you want to evolve, mm-hmm. um, it makes it tougher. Yeah. And so, you know, I think it's on everybody. I, you can't just, it's on everybody to kind of find a better way. And, and that goes to the industry guys as well. And, I just, I just think the toughest part right now is the sport hasn't evolved um, as a whole, as an entertainment value thing well, fast what's, enough. What's the greatest matchup that you would want to see right now? Like if you're like perfect situation. Um, Dave and John John. Okay, right. I agree with you, right? Yeah. I think you and I have talked about this before. I don't know. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> why isn't somebody like I, – I could see Eric Logan, for instance, going, why aren't we just having – Eric and John John at pipe for three hours and and screw the rest of the, the yeah. you know the back half of this whole deal. Like, why don't we just do pay per view McConnor Gregor versus Floyd Mayweather? Yeah, and and maybe it's not even pay per view, but my point is is that those are the things that we want to see now. Obviously, then how do you get the next John John? How do you, you right know? the the feeder system the yeah. whole thing? I think I I'm I'm one of those people who 
I understand people who see that and would want that. And I'm not saying that there's not a market for that because that's definitely, that's like right out of the Derek Hine playbook, right? Like when he tried to do the rebel tour years ago or something. And you know, if, if things are to implode, it's very likely you'll see that. Right. Because what's stopping those surfers from doing that now? It's the, like their affiliation they're, with they're, the WSL, right? Exactly. But, but there's plenty but of there, surfers. But think out. about how many influential surfers there are outside the WSL exactly. who can go, yeah. you know what? Me and this guy over here, we between us, we have a few million whatever followers. We're going to go do this thing and have our show down or whatever. Yeah. Um, nothing's really stopping them. It's just a matter of. It's what? not really there's a so, there's, valid championship, well, though. Whoever yeah, and that, wins, it's kind of like, well, well, well okay, you cares? won, but yeah. yeah and so deal. it's like it's like it's 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 no different than being a pool hustler or something. It's right. like okay, and so there's something to be said for a world champ. I think what's interesting to me is like, okay, you mentioned we just talked about Jaws. Why isn't that part of the world title, dude? I'm a huge believer. In <laughs> yeah, this. It's like if big, if surfing has evolved and it's that you know, and you're really trying to claim a world champ and like, the world's best surfer and the world's best surfer and like. Dude, I was up at San Onofre the other day, and Philippe Toledo was out there. Cool. Hanging out with his family, and he's riding a fish, and they'll jump on a longboard. That guy is good on every type of board. Right. You know what I mean? Surfing is, you know, from a mainstream perspective, whatever, and nothing – I don't think anything's ever going to make it mainstream. Let, right. Let's just get that on the table. Okay. But the, the – my point is, is that it's so narrow. High-performance shortboard surfing is a very – um narrow scope of the whole experience right these days because right. there are so many different ways to ride a board and so many different ways waves are being ridden now right that the sport has to catch up to reality so you want your surf your world champion to be uh well-rounded to be somebody yeah. that can win it not necessarily win at jaws but we want philippe toledo to compete we don't want him to go i'm not paddling out all right. uh, gary green at why man even if know. it's just giant porto escondido or whatever yeah you know I what i mean agree. it's like uh but my point is is like those are legit gnarly venues, and that's a huge part of surfing now is the big wave thing. And, yeah. and, and so, you know, the other thing that I have an issue with is, like, one of the most pivotal events for me as a Grom was watching Gerlach when he won the um, Stubbies Pro in Oceanside. And at the time, 16 guys came out of the trials. or something? It was 85. 85, okay. And, um, you know, 16 guys would come out of the trials of every event. So, and that's how it was. It would be um, the back half of the, there was the top 32. So you had the top 16, the back 16. The back 16 would face 16 guys out of the trials. So every event, it was almost like having 16 wild cards. So locals had way more of a freaking impact on every event, everywhere you went. It didn't matter if you were at the Ron John Pro, the Alloc Cup. This is how Martin Potter got his. Exactly. And so what was cool, and that's how Nicky Wood won Bell's. Right. That's how, you know what I mean? This is this is how you saw those big upsets and these local things. And that's the beautiful thing about surfing is every lineup has their guys who dominate. Like you hold a pro tour event in Santa Cruz, and I guarantee you some local yeah. is going to make the final. You know, like that's happened every year at the Bud Tour. Yep. And so um, I think there's something to be said for that that's missing, you know, mm-hmm. and this is where the rigidity I'm talking about. Yeah. Right? Is that we're missing? Because as a as as a fan, I've sort of spun the opposite. I've said, "Look, I only want twelve guys on tour." Yeah, and I get that. I get that. But I think there's something to be said for new faces. I agree. And 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 getting and get having an avenue to get to the top and getting your shot at the top guy. Yeah. And we don't see enough of that. My biggest gripe 
personally as a fan is when I'm going through the stats at the end of the year and, and I am writing these profiles and I'm going, okay, well, how many times did Gabe and John John actually match up last year? It's like, shit, they've only seen each other three times in two years. That's, that's bullshit. Good. That is not good. You know what I mean? Like, like, and I don't know if that's a st- – don't quote me on well, that, right, but it's but something similar. And, and less guys on tour would right. solve that problem. Yeah, less guys on tour would. So would three or four-man heats that matter where right. people lose. Right. Um, and so because some of the most exciting heats – I mean, remember that heat with Kelly, Mick, and John John at Pipe uh, a year or two ago? Maybe. It was ridiculous. It was yeah. one of the best. Mick ended up winning. Right, yeah. It was such a good heat. Right. Um, and uh, those types of things are super exciting for fans. When you multiply the, 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 the fun factor by, like, putting three or four really cool yeah. personalities in a heat, you're right. like, this is a super heat, you know? And that I think we need more of those. Okay, so you're a fan of four-man heats. I'm a fan you're of – You're a fan of three Jaws three, or three, big wave event being inc- part of the World Championship Tour. Yeah, yeah. And I'm even open to, like, you know, forcing guys to ride traditional equipment and going, okay, let's let's create a real world champ. Like, and I'm not saying this has to be, like, the part of the, the, the championship Tour we all know, but it's like if you really wanted to create a world champ, they should be able to – like, surfing is – is there's so many different disciplines. Yeah. And so to say that, you know, longboarding has no place in surfing, um, in, in, the, in the sport thing part of it, uh, yeah. in, the, in the decision of how well a guy can – you know, how well-rounded he is, yeah. um, I would like to – I would love to see that personally. But you and I are – I'm a longboarder too. I, lo- top, I love longboarding. What if you took the top five – W S like what, I mean, what is this championship tour for longboarding called? I don't even know, but let's, let's say you take the top five longboarders uh-huh. and you have like a, like a silly season, like a skins game. So you have the top five longboarders, the top five big wave guys and the top five CT guys. And maybe you throw in the f- top five girls somehow. I yeah. And you have this like silly season event just to see how it goes. Well, there's, I, I think there's definitely something there for like a creative tour, right. Of an artist kind of like exhibition, whatever, call it what you want. Right. Yeah. Um, but there's that side of surfing that's going being completely ignored. And frankly, it's more than one side. There's so many little, um, parts yeah. of the, the experience that don't, aren't being addressed mm-hmm. and aren't being celebrated. And, um, and so I think incorporating those in one of the biggest, I think, you know, the longboard thing's kind of another can of worms and longboarding is really controversial too, right? Because you have. The old school. You have Joel. Joel and the <laughs> duct tape, and which is beautiful, this and that. And then you have that whole, like, new school longboarding where they're yeah. doing, you know, Taylor roundhouse Jensen. cutbacks and all that kind of stuff. And yeah. then and then you, there's that hybrid Hawaiian Makaha version where you see these guys do incredible crap on their longboard. Yeah. And, um, and you're going, well, gosh, I, I'm definitely more duct tape than anything, right? Like, right. I think traditional longboarding is, is – definitely the the most alluring and and um intriguing to me personally yeah but i'm not gonna say i don't like those years in makaha opened my eyes um to see what these guys actually do and Mm -hmm. can do and i'm like well god and you just can't bottle it it's really hard i don't i i'm not a fan though of like the current um criteria that is determining world champ i think it's horrendous i would agree with that yeah the aesthetic just doesn't it's just not there i mean i would much rather i'd much rather force people to ride you know i don't know what the requirements on the joel boards are but it's like mandated single fin 
20 pounds. I'm going <laughs> to, so. uh, I'm going to make you the WSL commissioner for a minute here. And, um, I'm actually, I'm going to make you the big wave world tour commissioner for a minute here. And Albie Lair went on Instagram and wrote some kind of vulgar stuff about the judging. I don't know if you saw it, mm. um, but it was pretty, you know, it wasn't, it was, you know, it was vulgar mm. about the judges and what the judges are doing to, to uh, Billy Kemper, mm. some sexual act so that he could win. Oh, wow. Like who is okay. Billy Kemper or yeah. whatever. So if this happened in the NBA and you were the commissioner of the NBA, you'd be like, you know what? There's going to be some sort of sanction. I don't know if it's fiscal. I don't know if we're going to suspend you, mm. but we can't have our professional athletes belittling the judges and other competitors in this really unprofessional way. Mm. Now, you know, the other side of the equation is, Hey, we're just surfers. This is how surfers talk. He didn't mean anything about it. He was just kind of, it, it was almost colloquial. It was just kind of tongue in cheek, no pun intended. <laughs> and, 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 you know, and he was, and he was also emoting, he was telling you how he felt and he yeah. was being, you know, and you certainly don't as you and I editorially, we don't ever want to stop that. We like that when stuff happens like that. But as the commissioner, how would you handle something like this? Uh, Do you think something should be done? Do you think it is bad for the WSL when their professional athletes are calling out judges in such a sort of unprofessional manner? Well, I don't think there's ever been an era in surfing, especially pro surfing, when the judges haven't been getting called out. So it's a, it's, that just comes with the territory, number one. Like, you're going to take abuse. The last thing you want to do, I think the last thing you want to do, and I think one of my um, – it, it, is clamped down on any kind of free speech. I think anytime the WSL does that, all it does is just make matters worse. Make it look too uh, patriarchal. Just, and yeah, just... It's, just, it's just like, look, it's, it's, still, the best, it's, it's still the best show in town. You know what I mean? It's like, look – it's it's still the best show in town right now. Here's here's the thing about does it harm the WSL that that are professional athletes or no? I mean, like controversy is good. You need it. Look at the UFC. Look at I mean, like what's you, going you don't go anywhere. Far? What's you, what's going too well, far? Uh physically okay. harming a judge would okay. probably be where I would say is too far. Right. Um, but you know, I'm not. So the Bobby Martinez thing. Was freaking all time. <laughs> it was the best thing that ever happened to the it was, Well, it was just one of those things where it was the sport needs color. Yeah. You need characters. Yeah. The, the biggest thing right now, and, and this is an art form too. Right. It's like, it's a show. Right. You guys, this is entertainment. Right. It's not pure sport. Right. It is not pure sport. I don't care what you say. It's not pure sport. I'm a fan. It's just entertainment. I agree. You know, the thing that I love about it, in my, uh, about, having heats and the value of having an event and bringing people together and saying, go do this is in this day and age when anybody can make a video part. And this has existed for 10, 15 years now, and anybody could chop it together. And this goes back to, all the way to the momentum generation, right? If you look at like that whole momentum generation, they all, their whole deal was get a video part. It was like, and it'll take me six months to get my 90 seconds in Taylor's movie. And I'm going to land all these freaking moves. And it was cool because it was progressive and those movies, you know, kind of made everybody dream about what we could do and what could be done. But what was so crazy at that period of time, if you recall, is that if you watch that guy's video part and then you went and saw him at a contest, reality did not match the video ever. There was a huge freaking gap. 
you know? Right. And the, here's what's so beautiful about the condos is like, show me that now. You've got 30 minutes. Go show me what you got. It's truly on-demand performance. And that there's value to that. And it doesn't matter if it's two foot or 10 foot or whatever. It is what it is. People could whine and complain about the conditions. But um, there's something about bringing people together, having them look at each other's boards. Like those early stubbies contests at Trestles, it was, you know, at the end of that 70s reign when people weren't communicating and they weren't talking. That was the best part was seeing like what the boards from up north looked like compared to the boards in San Diego. Yeah. And how these guys were riding them and their approach to ways. And there was really, there was a lot of difference and it was was super cool. Yeah. And so it was like this exchange of ideas and these things. And that's how things progress. And to me, that's the value of getting a bunch of people together as opposed to just like a handful of guys. Right. And that's why I'm not a fan of the smaller thing. I think you could just cram, cram more people into the water and just, you know, do it in two days instead of four and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, so 36, 32 guys, I think keep it 32, whatever, but you know, do more four man heats and three man heats. They're way more entertaining. And guys, I've scientifically done the math. I've looked at it. There are more ways ridden in those three man heats. Guys actually catch more ways than they do in a man on man. heat. And and Oh, by the way, it's cheaper to run events. If we do this. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Well, their, their whole thing when they were trying to redo the schedule last year was to figure out how they can cut down on time and a whole thing. Yeah. And so, it's you know, it's right there. It's yeah. right in front of you. The 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 whole man on purpose for man on man was to eliminate hassling, right? And that four man priority judge system that they have, and we're getting way into the weeds here, but it's like it solved that. I'm sorry, but it solved it. And if you combine that with overlapping sort of Kelly Slater format, where you have two heats in the water at the same time, I don't think you need to do that because then you got eight guys in the water. Yeah, in some places just. I don't think you need that. I think with four man, I mean, it's the same thing. You got the overlap, right? Um, But you know, those overlapping heats uh, when you're watching that at pipe, it's actually kind of cool because more waves are getting rid. Yeah, it's a perfect example of what you're talking about. Absolutely. But anyway, it will never happen. I can't see it happening because it's just a little too much hard of a pill to swallow for the surfers i think chris morrow we've said it all buddy <laughs> we've said a lot here good catching up bass yeah. it's always fun man yeah we need to do this again oh uh, absolutely who should i get on the podcast who who's some good people that, uh, that need to be interviewed and by the way aren't you doing are you doing a podcast yes so i'm gonna what's start your, what's your podcast all about let's well that so up. i'm gonna launch in january i've had a got a couple under my belt still editing but yeah um Everybody's it's, doing a podcast. I know. I'm just join the fray, dude. You're I, you're you need to be in the in the fray. It well, you know, for me, I love what you guys are doing, and you've been doing this for so long, and you're such a great interviewer. And David and some of these other guys are just like I, I'm super impressed, and it's fun for me. It's just a way to catch up. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of I've got a lot of things going on in terms of like it's not just this my. I'm interviewing old people, like friends of my parents and that kind of stuff, getting all that oh wow, that, that stuff down too. And hmm. just because when my dad passed away earlier this year and I had some recordings of conversations we had, it just meant the world to me. Yeah, that's cool. And so um, for me, uh, you know, getting words of wisdom from people while they're around is yeah. super important. And as you know, and you guys do a great job, there are so many characters in our space um, that uh, are holding on to just, you know, pearls of wisdom. And and one of my favorite columns when you and I were at the magazine was people who surf. 
and it was it's basically the premise was really you never really know who's sitting next to you in the lineup that but it's usually somebody who has a very interesting life mm-hmm. and that's kind of my thing like yes there'll be the occasional surf star and stuff but it's yeah. it's more somebody who's just got an interesting story well you're pretty connected you could definitely bring in heavy yeah hitters. yeah well i think you should get tom lochtfeld to talk about wave pool to. technology love to. um i worked for him for a little while um went to china with him singapore and his mind the way it works is is super interesting and he could shed some light on the whole technology thing and really yeah. w- what the limitations are and all that. And yeah. he's opinionated. Oh yeah. Uh, he'd be great. Um, God, there it's endless. Yeah. You, you do need to get Don Craig cause you know him. I already did him, but, yeah. uh, that'll be coming out. He's, he's yeah. amazing. Um, one of the recommendations that, uh, I got, have you ever had, uh, Terry son, Terry Martin son on there? No, but I'm a big fan. Josh is a great guy. Yeah, so like Josh, I, that guy. I think he would be. There's so many. There are, and I've literally got a backlog. Of, yeah, I'm my, excited about it. Um, but and then you know you have to kind of go as much international as you can. I think we're all kind of we have our Southern California glasses on, and we totally. got to take those off and totally. get out there. So you know, between a lot of us, there's there's a lot of people that hopefully we can um, bring to the fore, and I'll be passing them all your way as much as i can so i'll take your screen. do you have a name for your podcast yet or it's in january uh, the and- working title right now is the people who serve podcast right based on that cool um so whether it, that sticks yeah. until january i don't know i'm kind of pondering that right now actually right. Um, all right but i will keep you posted for sure cool and then you know we're we're honoring wayne lynch this year at the boardroom show and i'm doing it looks like right now fingers crossed it looks like i'm doing a boardroom show in japan that's amazing. So wait, too. so I know your, re, your, your listeners already know all this, but how many do you do a year now? Well, I usually do one, okay. one boardroom show a year in Del Mar in the spring, but we're trying to do one in Japan and, um, which would be as awesome. of this recording. It looks like it's moving forward, but things could change quickly. And what time of the year will that be? That will just be two or three weeks after the Del Mar show. Japan would love it. I'm hoping there. I mean, if you think about it, it, they're such lovers of quality product yeah, um, and aesthetics and the craft. And so, I mean, yeah. I think it's, I think it's going to be cool to see yeah. that. That'll be awesome. Yeah. I hope so Chris Morrow. Thank, thank you, you buddy. Good, yeah. Good stuff. Really fun. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Just slow things down, get a little funkier, and do some blues for you right now.
noche de mar. Well, I was loving you 
Hey, you can help this show keep going strong by donating. We're asking for $5 a month recurring donation if you can afford it. That breaks down to just a very small amount of Bitcoin each and every day. Donate to The Boardroom Show. It'll help great boardroom podcasts such as this one continue to show up in your podcast feed. You can donate via the boardroomshow.com website, boardroomshow.com. Click on the podcast page and you'll be directed to a donate button. You can also donate to the entire Surf Splendor podcast network. So if it's not just my show, but other shows that you are stoked to listen to, David Scales has put out quite a number of great listening podcasts and you can go to surf splendor podcast and donate there to all of the podcast options specifically for boardroom show podcast go to the boardroomshow.com website for surf splendor podcast donations go to surf splendor podcast.com thanks for your donations why say blah when a simple why say blah, blah, blah when a simple blah will suffice? Donate now. Thanks. <laughs>